You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, and this morning we're looking together at chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. You'll find this on page 775 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at verses 5 through 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 just for context. Jonah chapter 3, and you'll find it again on page 775. Hear the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. How would you respond if I said New York City repented of their sins? I imagine you might say, well, great. Did a revival meeting break out? And by that you would mean, of course, that a large number of people were converted in New York City. But then I would say, no, that's not what I meant. The whole city repented. Every man, woman, and child from the greatest of them to the least. And of course, such a report would in your ears be stunning. Could such a thing happen in New York City? Well, it happened in Nineveh. No revival in history compares with what happened in Nineveh. The great, proud, wicked city of Nineveh was struck over with overwhelming sense of dread. All of its citizens from top to bottom were seized with fear and humiliation. And that led to visible signs of repentance such as sackcloth and fasting. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people turning from sin to God, the God of Israel. And it was a revival the likes of which I don't think has ever happened again. 
the points of history, of course, many have been converted at the same time, but not this many. If revival broke out in Hudson, we might say, well, all of Hudson was affected. And of course, by that we would mean many turned or a large part of the population was affected. We see some of the evidence around us. But according to our text, the whole of Nineveh repented and believed. They did so in response to the powerful and pointed preaching of Jonah. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the prophet's proclamation. That's what the Spirit used to convict them. And God brought Jonah Jonah into compliance, and now he was bringing Nineveh into compliance as well. And of course, one question that arises in my mind is, from where did Nineveh's repentance originate? After all, this was a pagan city. They were fiercely and they were intolerably wicked. So how could one man threatening judgment bring an entire city to repentance? What prompted a vast, idolatrous population to bend their knees to Yahweh? On the surface, it was the result of the message of judgment powerfully proclaimed. It's an amazing thing. Oh, wouldn't it be great just to hear Jonah announcing that ominous judgment? Not long before, he'd been praying in the belly of hell, as it were, scared out of his wits. God answered his prayer, delivered him from the depths, and restored him to the office. And now, Jonah's motivated not only by divine authority, but the force of gratitude. He's preaching. And he doesn't like the Ninevites. He despises these people but he'll do it for the Lord. So with eyes wide, gestures animated, voice raised, he declares the message. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They took to heart the message. They received it as the word of God. It was the outward call beckoning these Assyrian pagans to believe and repent. And it was in response to the word that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, according to verse 5. And that's because they believed God. Like Abram, you remember, who believed and was justified? Their conscience was convicted, and in faith they turned from their sin and they trusted in Yahweh. That's repentance. But to say that they turned simply because of the message would be unbiblical. On the surface, that's what happened. And to the eye of man, that makes perfect sense. And perhaps that's why so many think that conversion depends on the efforts of man. That's what we can see. That's what we can witness. But something unseen and supernatural occurred here. Indeed, from the perspective of heaven, the source was far more profound. The Bible says that faith and repentance as exhibited here in Nineveh are free gifts given by the Spirit of God. Paul says, for example, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so here he highlights two precious gifts, 
given on behalf of the Lord Jesus. To believe in him, he says, is a gift by God who's, by whose will we're born from above. That's a gift. To suffer for the sake of Christ is a gift because it's an honor to glorify him in our suffering. Elsewhere, we learn that the Jews who listened to Peter underscored their gratuitous nature of repentance. Remember Acts 11? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So he not only gave the means to repent, he gave the grace of repentance itself. Repentance like that expressed by the Ninevites, it's a gift from God. Matthew Henry says it's not only his free grace that accepts repentance, but his mighty grace that works it in me. The Spirit takes away the heart of stone. Think of that, a heart of stone. And he gives this warm heart of flesh. It is a supernatural work, a miracle of grace, as it were. Jesus himself said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So faith and repentance, they're free gifts, or as our standards call them, saving graces. For reasons known to God alone, he chose to save that generation of Ninevites. And wherever he aims to give life, he also gives a sincere, heartfelt repentance. So Nineveh's turnaround at Jonah's preaching was the fruit of divine grace. It was a gift. They took God at his word, showing that God's spirit was at work in them. And according to promise, God's promise, the Holy Spirit attended Jonah's preaching with power. And when the herald's words reached their ears, it also pierced their hearts. It doesn't always happen that way. Not with everybody. But thank God if it pierces your heart. Now, of course, a typical bystander on the streets of Nineveh probably thought little of this solitary Jew just trudging his way through the streets of Nineveh. Can you imagine? If you noticed him at all, he's probably amused by him or annoyed by him or maybe just totally indifferent. Oh, there's some guy, just some quack job. The skies are blue, the sun is bright, we're prosperous, and everything carries on just as it should. There's no indication of danger why on earth should I think that utter destruction is imminent? But then as God's power overshadowed the city, there was a sudden change, wasn't there? I can imagine a handful of people responding to the message of doom. You know, overly anxious types. Oh, man. But the entire city of well over 600,000 people there is no reasonable person on earth who would have expected that to happen. But as Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. A massive revival. A magnificent display of supernatural gracious power. That's where it originated. 
And another question that arises then is how was their faith and repentance expressed? Okay, the Spirit did it, but how did they express it? Well, first of all, these saving graces were expressed by trembling at the threat of judgment. In other words, they took seriously the proclamation of doom heralded by Jonah, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so these Assyrians believed in things as of yet unseen and things to the flesh entirely unlikely. They understood somehow that this was no idle threat. God was warning them. In little more than a month, if nothing changed, Nineveh would be destroyed. Secondly, their faith and repentance were expressed by embracing the message of hope. At some point, they must have heard a report of Jonah's experience. Surely the prophet explained to them how God had delivered him from the great fish, in the belly of the fish. And something so extraordinary could never have been kept secret for very long. Indeed, it's Jesus himself who tells us that Jonah's deliverance was made known. Do you remember what he said? As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What our Lord is saying is that as a sign to the Ninevites, Jonah pointed ahead to the resurrection of Christ. He told them. That's the hope of the gospel right there. Therein lies the hope of eternal life. Paul says... I count everything as loss, and for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Why, Paul? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the hope. And these Ninevites, theirs was a slender hope, to be sure, but it was a hope. They had not despaired. The sign and preaching of Jonah had led them to believe that God just might relent. The very fact that God was willing to warn them was an indication of mercy, I think. It was something he did not give the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. One moment the sun was shining, the next moment fire and brimstone. And they might have thought that if God spared the disobedient prophet, he just might spare us. It was a hope. So the Ninevites trembled at the threat of judgment and they embraced the message of hope. And this is what our standards say. Faith acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands. We strive to obey God's commands. Trembling at the threatenings. He means business. And embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. It obeys the commands, it trembles at the threats, it embraces the promises, and that's how faith responds to the nature of the things revealed. And that's what the Ninevites did. And I'm amazed. They trembled at the threat. They embraced the promise. And sadly, the world doesn't tremble at the threats of coming judgment. God is not taken seriously in our day. His threats are treated like cosmic gags. Scoffers say, where's the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. And the world refuses to believe that God has fixed a day on which he'll judge all men in righteousness. And you know something? Unless the Spirit persuades them of the truth, they'll never believe it. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place. The Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot gave them fair warning, but they treated his warning as a joke. Neither the world nor the nominal church take God's threats seriously, just like they don't take his promises seriously. But strikingly, and perhaps surprisingly, by the Holy Spirit, these pagan Ninevites believed. Man. And they did so for the authority of God speaking through the prophet. There was nothing else to suggest that destruction was imminent. The sun was shining. They didn't know how or from where the threatened ruin would come. What force, think of it, what force at that time could destroy such a vast powerful, prosperous city. The most powerful city on earth at the time. And yet they held a fast. They wore sackcloth. They called out mightily to God. And without any other evidence, they believed God's infallible testimony. That's an amazing thing. That's the work of grace. Peter says that word is more strong and convincing than anything else that can be heard or seen. The voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. They heard it. And then he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. What we have in the scriptures are the very living oracles of God. His word was written by express command and it was preserved by special care. And in the providence of God, its prophecies have been fulfilled with remarkable accuracy. Baby born in Bethlehem. Casting lots for my clothes. And God's word is more sure than Peter's account of hearing the voice from heaven. Abraham, remember him who said, Moses and the prophets are more persuasive than miracles? So let's build our faith upon this inspired, infallible, and firm foundation. And let's learn from this how great is God's power over the hearts of people. You know, it's amazing to me for a long, long time, many prophets preached in Israel and Judah almost in vain. <laughs> Isaiah and Jeremiah both had ministries that started out by God telling them, no one's going to listen to you. They were often mocked and their message was despised and their safety was threatened. And yet in Nineveh, a lone prophet preaching for the very first time witnessed a revival the likes of which no one has ever seen. And not just the revival of a few, but the entire city. They were pagans living in a great city within a vast, prosperous empire. So while the Jews rejected the prophetic word, these pagans believed it. That's power.
The king arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth, and the king sat in ashes. That's power. That generation of Ninevites will rise up and they will condemn the unbelieving Jews. That's what Jesus said. And that same generation will rise up to denounce the unbelievers of this age, sadly. To be sure, we know from the word of God that it will go well with believers and not well with unbelievers. Psalmist says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the believing, but the way of the wicked will perish. I don't like saying that. It's a horrid doctrine, but it's true. It's as clear as day. There's no need of prophets marching through our streets. We have the word. Many pulpits have declared the gospel message. Many good men have declared the gospel message even in this region, and it rests with us to believe. The message of Jesus Christ is set forth, and all of us are called to give a response. His blood cleanses from all sin. Those who believe are not condemned. Believers are forgiven and accepted and given free access to the throne of grace. That's a gospel message. And what is remarkable is God's power to draw sinners to that message. Under Jonah's preaching, the Spirit gave new birth to an entire generation of unbelieving people. I think it's similar to Ezekiel's vision of that vast army of dead, dry bones that were brought to life. How great is the power of God over the hearts of men. There's plenty of scriptural evidence. Psalmist says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And Nehemiah, do you remember? He believed that proverb or that psalm because he prayed to God for the favor of the king. It says in Acts 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. By an inward work of grace, the Spirit exchanged her heart of stone for a heart of flesh. And finally, Paul says to the Corinthians, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the same God who put that sun in the sky to shine throughout the whole region can shine within our hearts. And it's only by supernatural power that the natural man can become spiritual. The Holy Spirit himself has to do a mighty work of grace for a sinner to embrace Christ. That's why you embraced him, and that's why I did. That's why these boys professed this morning. It's the Holy Spirit. So our prayers ought to be framed with that in mind. God, give me a new heart. God, give her a new heart. Our evangelism ought to be bathed in prayer. Otherwise, you and I are going to labor in vain. And our gratitude for the new birth should be deep because there is no hope without it. You don't choose him. He chooses you. 
It's a gift. And trusting God, let's embrace the message of hope extended in the gospel. Like the Ninevites, you and I are destined for ruin apart from faith and repentance. (laughs) Realizing their situation was desperate, they said, who knows? God may relent. So while they recognized the danger, they didn't give up in despair. There was hope, a hint of expectation, a tinge of confidence that God may have mercy. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know something? Oftentimes, weak believers and fresh converts don't have the confidence of a seasoned believer. That's expected. That's normal. And they often vacillate between an expectation of mercy and this profound sense of ill desert. I'm a sinner. And so tossing and turning, they often mingle the language of faith and unbelief. They go back and forth, like the father of the child who cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So there is this back and forth inside the person between belief and unbelief, but it's that sense of his helpless state and his lost condition that compels him to seek the Lord. In Christ, he offers freely salvation in the ministry of the gospel to anyone who will trust in him. However however sinful a person is, whatever circumstances he may be in, he can find forgiveness and eternal salvation if he simply embraces Christ. And God saves sinners without bringing any disrepute on his majesty or his justice or his truth. The vilest, most blind and hard-hearted sinner now living can be saved. But let me remind us not to be lax or lethargic in our sincere embrace of the gospel. You remember what Jesus said. I'm not saying anything you don't already know, but I quote our Lord. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So if we are to obtain the kingdom of God, we have to force our way into it. Now, somebody says to me, wait a minute, what does that mean? I thought salvation was free. Why must we force our way into it? Well, forcing one's way into the kingdom is a figurative way of describing it. It denotes at least three things. First of all, it denotes a strong desire to find forgiveness and acceptance with God. Obtaining salvation is desired more than anything else on earth. You're going for it. Secondly, it denotes a steady resolve to do everything and anything possible to find salvation. You attend worship. You read your Bible. You engage in prayer. You fellowship with other Christians. That's forcing your way into it. But then third, it denotes an earnestness about the gospel and a seriousness about the kingdom. 
There is this deep concern about the current state of your soul and the first future destiny of your soul. We're sincere and we're diligent in our use of God's appointed means. Nothing deters us. You've heard about those people who walk five miles to church. Nothing's going to deter them. Nothing dissuades them. They brave every difficulty. They're forcing their way into it. And things that may discourage others do not and will not discourage us. Because as Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So let's be diligent in our pursuit of the kingdom. Think of your need for salvation. Without it, you're going to perish. Think of how soon the opportunity of salvation might be withdrawn. Today's the day. You may not have tomorrow. Think of how difficult it is to overcome those ingrained sins the longer you delay. And finally, and most importantly, think of how glorious and excellent the life in Christ's kingdom will be. And let's remember finally and briefly just how willing our God is to hear our prayers and to provide his help. With that ray of hope, the Ninevites called out mightily to God and he answered them. So let's pray for his grace and let's expect him to answer according to his promise. And as we pray in confidence of his promises and obedience to his commands, we glorify his name. Rejoice always, Christian. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so great a salvation as our elder prayed. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. And we pray today that anyone who has yet to place their faith in Christ would even now do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for so great a salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.